Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. More than 35,000 people died in car crashes last year, according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. That's a 7% increase from the previous year. Lots of factors are behind this, including distracted driving, drunk driving, and speeding. Federal transportation officials point to self-driving technology as one way overall accidents could decrease on our highways and local roads. Would you step into a self-driving car? Today, where we live, we'll learn more about the technology. Coming up, we'll hear from two Connecticut innovators about how they're using the latest technology to create products that are helping advance practices in medicine. And later, hydrokinetic energy. What is it? And how will it impact coastlines in New England and across the country? You can join the conversation. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining me now in studio is Jim McPherson, a national AAA auto guide writer and host of WTIC's Car Doctor. Welcome to the show, Jim. It is my pleasure to be here. So today we're talking about self-driving cars. I understand that you were able um, to experience some of this new technology. Tell us about that trip. When Acura first introduced the RLX with its self-driving package, if you will, and by the way, I should emphasize that today's cars with the advanced technology that allow you to do this really should be treated as that technology should be treated as a safety net, not as a substitute for the driver. But out of curiosity to see how it would work, I did take the car from Farmington to Manchester, Connecticut on I-84 and was able to do so with the active cruise control set and the lane keep assist system turned on without touching the gas, the brake, or the steering. And the car anticipated and reacted to slowing traffic in front of me with no problems. It managed to keep the car between the white lines. It has a camera that reads those lane markings and then adjusts the steering appropriately. Now, that was an early production version of that particular car. Shortly thereafter, they did change the technology. So if the vehicle senses that you have your hand off the wheel for an extended period of time, around 20 seconds, it begins to flash a warning at you, and then eventually it just drops out of the picture. But in those earlier samples, which did not do that, in fact, the car drove itself all the way from Farmington to Manchester, compensating for changes in traffic flow with no problem whatsoever. Was anybody in the car with you? No. And I might say that I was nervous as all get out. My hands were (laughs) a quarter of an inch from the steering wheel ready to pounce if the car did anything wrong. But it didn't. Was this during rush hour? We know what I-84 is like uh, during uh, rush hour. It was during reasonably moderate traffic levels. It was done on a Sunday afternoon. So the traffic was there, but it was not rush hour traffic. And how did you feel once you stepped out of the car? Actually, I felt much relieved to take control again (laughs) when I said, okay, enough is enough. And I went back to driving. That's interesting. I was reading a lot about um, you know this technology, and a law professor uh, told the Washington Post that at first people are terrified when they step into a car with this type of driverless technology. But then a mile later, he says they feel total confidence in the system. Is that how you felt? No, <laughs> it was not. Uh, I was I was on pins and needles the entire way. But by the same token, I was curious to see just how far it would go. Would it be able to, for example, take the vehicle toward through the uh, rather dramatic turns in West Hartford? 
and it was. So we went through the highway, and I should point out that the engineers who were involved in developing these sorts of vehicles say highway is easy. It's around town and in urban areas that we really run into the potential for complex situations, and it's much more difficult to program a car to be able to cope with those situations than it is a highway travel. You're known as the car doctor on WTIC. Tell us about the self-driving technology. Um, How many cars or card makers have this now in their vehicles? An increasing number of cars are offering various levels of self-driving technology. You could actually go back a bit and suggest that some of the self-driving technology has been around for years. I would point to anti-lock brakes, which is a system that will step in to help a driver maintain control in an emergency stop or a stop with low traction. Then we've had stability control, which has been mandated since 2012. Again, this will step in not so much to keep the wheels from locking when you're stopping, but to actually help uh, repair a skid and to bring a car back under control. And the system works marvelously. So we've had the technology, some aspects of it, for some time. But now we're seeing an increasing adoption of active cruise control. These are systems that use radar to maintain a preset distance from the car in front when the system is activated. So if you set your cruise control on I-84 to, say, 65 miles per hour, and the car in front of you slows to 55 and the traffic slows to 55, your car will automatically slow to 55, keeping a preset distance. When the traffic clears, your car will then speed up. Then we have systems that warn you if you're deviating from your lane, and these usually use cameras that will detect the lane markings. And added to that now, we have systems called Lane Keep Assist, which if your car begins to veer off the lane, it will actually step in and try to steer you back into your lane. Now, the real progress that we've seen on this front, I think, is that suddenly now we're seeing cars that are actually below the national average for purchase price, cars below that price threshold where you can now get these options on the vehicle at a price that you could argue many new car buyers could afford. Such as what, mid-20s? Such as mid-20s. And when you get into the mid-20s, actually in some cases, Honda, for example, lower 20s. Um, I just recently had a Hyundai Elantra with the systems that worked reasonably well, 27000 The average car today goes off the showroom floor at about thirty-three dollars to $34,000. Wow. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about driverless technology, a car that drives itself. What do you think about this feature? Would you buy a car that have, has this software? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, WTIC's car doctor Jim McPherson is here in studio with us to give us some uh, expertise on this new technology as well as answer questions. You know, um, when I started the show, I mentioned how uh, the fatalities on highways is increasing. And so oftentimes people point to this new technology as a way to redru- reduce traffic fatalities when we look at you know human errors responsible for 94 percent of deaths on, on highways and local roads. Um, can we talk a little bit about uh, an incident that happened in Florida? Um, here's Bloomberg reporter Tim Higgins. Tesla is saying that a tractor trailer was crossing a divided highway, and when it was perpendicular, the Tesla hit it. Uh, One of the key things that Tesla is saying is that the uh, white trailer uh, up against a bright sky and the car uh, uh, autopilot didn't see it, and they're also saying the driver didn't see it. So he's talking about a a, a crash that happened in Florida recently. Can you talk about what happened there and what type of car that was? Well, this was a Tesla Model S. It's an all-electric vehicle that has a system called autopilot. And again, I would stress this is another example of recognizing that the current set of autonomous systems is designed 
primarily as a safety net. It is not a substitute for the driver. And there are reports in this particular crash that the driver was actually watching a movie when the crash occurred. I don't know if that's true or not. Investigators will undoubtedly try to determine that. But clearly, when you're the driver of the car, you have to be involved in that, in the act of driving. Is it possible for the systems to miss a vehicle that goes in front? And it suggests that, in fact, even Tesla needs more sophisticated systems in order to find out exactly what's going on around the vehicle and then react accordingly. So again, these are safety net systems. These are not substitute systems at this point. And how far advanced is Google and Apple with their uh, autonomous cars? When you look at, um, you know, like you said, uh, Honda, Tesla, Hyundai, putting more of this technology into their newer uh, vehicles. We don't know exactly what Apple is doing, and there's a certain amount of concern in the auto industry as to what Apple is doing. And, And indeed, the auto industry is looking at this entire change with, I think, a degree of concern and befuddlement because we don't know where the market is going to go or exactly what's going to happen. And certainly when you start talking about Apple, there's concern that they might want to get into the manufacturing process of a motor vehicle. The general thought is that Google wants to establish the technology, and they're quite quite a ways along in that regard. They want to establish the technology so that they can sell it to existing automotive manufacturers. We're talking about self-driving cars and the technology involved, and Ford recently announced that they're going to be marketing cars by 2021. How's that, what they're doing, different from what's um, offered now um, on the street? It's really not that different. They're talking about cars that will have a degree of autonomy, and I don't know whether or not we're going to be ready for them in five years. The general, the general assumption is it's going to be at least 2030 before we see a significant commercial influx. But it's interesting to note that Ford Motor Company has also changed the description of itself, anticipating self-driving cars and the possibility of both the shared ride and the hail ride economy that could follow. They're no longer proclaiming themselves as automakers. They're in the transportation business. They don't want to be eclipsed. And so there is this general attitude of we really don't know which way it's going to be going, but we have to be prepared regardless. And there are interesting possibilities when you stop to think about it, especially with autonomous vehicles for ride hailing or ride sharing. Because if you buy a new car, average price $33,000, $34,000, and you use it two hours a day, it is sitting idle 90% of the time. It's not being used. And how many businesses would look at that large an investment to not be used 90% of the time, and yet we do it all the time? So imagine a world in which you hailed a ride, and the car dropped you off here, and then it went on perhaps to pick up somebody in the west end of Hartford to go into downtown Hartford, and then it went elsewhere. In other words, you never owned the car. You just paid for the section of transportation that you used that it provided. Excuse me. You would also find under those circumstances that the very interesting a very interesting change occurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we start talking about ur- urban planning, for example. You wouldn't have to park your car here. What could they do with that parking lot behind the studios in terms of urban planning? Uh, 24% of downtown Los Angeles is devoted to parking cars. Another 25% is devoted to streets. So you have almost half the city of downtown Los Angeles devoted to the automobile. What happens if you didn't have to park it? What happens if it was more efficient in terms of its utilization? How would that work out? So I think that there are all sorts of interesting possibilities, and manufacturers genuinely don't know which way 
this market is going to go. You mentioned ride-sharing. Uber has announced that it has a pilot program in Pittsburgh so people can actually hail a car um, by their, with their smartphone um, for a car that's using this technology, but that doesn't mean there's not a driver in the seat. Can you talk about that? It's not only not a driver, but they are going to have a driver to take over in the event of an emergency. And initially, from the press reports that I've read, they're also going to have another individual in the right front seat who's observing both the vehicle and the driver to see how the driver reacts to different situations. And this is another critical factor, too, and that is that even advanced technology, when self-driving cars arrive, will not necessarily supplant the driver under all circumstances because there are conditions right now in which the self-driving features, the car that I drove from Farmington to Manchester, it was on a bright, clear, sunny day. If we had added a little bit of slush to the roadway, it couldn't have seen the, the lane markings. And so the lane keep assist wouldn't have worked. If slush had covered the front radar unit, it would not know what was in front of the car. So the active cruise control would not work. And so under those circumstances, a driver would definitely be necessary to step in and take control. And this raises another interesting issue. Will drivers who are used to riding in an autonomous vehicle be able to recognize that there's a problem and step in quickly? Right now, we have vehicles, for example, with the autonomous features that when they shut down, they just shut down. They don't give you 30 seconds warning. They don't give you 10 seconds warning. They just say, ah, can't do it anymore, and they're out of the picture, and you had better be prepared to take over. Wow. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking about driverless technology today. Would you step into a vehicle? Is this something you're looking to buy in the future? I want to take a call from Scott from Wallingford. Scott, you're on Where We Live. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What's your comment or question? Well, I'm just so hesitant about technology like this, and we were listening to uh, statistics about deaths and fatalities and injuries on highways, et cetera. And, you know, I'm a, an American, so I'm out driving in my car, and I'm amazed at how people drive these days. There's a total amount of excessive speed, um, very dangerous driving to get ahead and move forward faster, bad lane changing on the highway, racing around, cutting in front of people, and the number of people that are texting, are, are it's really scary. Um, I also drive a bicycle, and I'm out on the road, and I'm constantly having to be aware of what's going on around me. So my concern is that with this technology coming along, it's going to put people more at a, uh, dis- uh, more at a level that they'll feel that they're able to do more of these uh, texting and, and doing other things, looking at, uh, you know, laundry lists or putting makeup on and things like that. So that's my concern. Scott, uh, just a quick question for you. Um, obviously, the technology is still uh, being worked out, but in the future, if this were perfected in some sense, would you feel, would it be better to have more of these types of cars on the road to, to lessen the, the traffic fatalities and, and other accidents and crashes that happen? I don't know. I don't. I don't. I. I just don't know. But I, I have a feeling that the the most important thing that we can do to reduce our accidents and fatalities is just pay attention and drive within the normal speed limit. Um, you know, if the speed limit is 55, people are generally doing 70, and if the speed limit is 65, if you're going 70 or 75 or less, you're you're holding people down. So, uh, I think people need to just slow down. I know it's tough in this day and age. Everybody's in a hurry, especially in high urban areas or high population areas like we live. But I think that's the problem and and not the technology. 
Well, Scott, thank you for your call. I'll go back to our guest, Jim McPherson, uh, also the host of WTAC's Car Doctor program and a national AAA auto guide writer. Um, do you feel like there's a lot of consumers out there like Scott that are just like, well, I don't want anything to do with this. The, the focus should be on people not being distracted when they're driving, period. There was a recent poll that suggested that something like 48% of the car buying population is completely disinterested in autonomous vehicles. And generally, there's a split by age. The younger you are, the more likely you are to embrace the technology. And so the very youngest of consumers are much more likely to say, yes, I would be very interested in that, versus older consumers who are more likely to say, not interested in the least. I would be concerned about that possibility. There are also a split out. There's also a split out in terms of vehicles that are owned. Uh, This particular survey found that those people most willing to embrace self-driving technology own Mercedes-Benz and Infiniti cars. Those people least interested drive Jeeps, Dodge Ram pickups. Now it's just known as the Ram, but the Ram pickup truck, BMWs and Porsches. So there's a split in terms of the of the overall interest. There's also an interesting change that's coming about in younger drivers. And I should say younger non-drivers. We are at some of the lowest rates of driver license penetration among 18-year-olds that we have mm-hmm. that we have ever seen. And indeed, there was one auto executive who I was talking to a while back who was just very, very frustrated over a teenage son who said, I'm not interested in driving. I'm going to live in an urban area where I can take mass transit and I will be using my tablet and smartphone during that transportation time. And so you have a coming generation that I think is far more open to this sort of technology than, shall we say, some of those of us who are older. That's interesting that you talk about that, Jim, because I was thinking uh, before the show about how um, as uh, technology advances, it just seems like we have fewer and fewer skills. You know, it used to be a coming of age when you learned how to drive, and that may not be something that our teenagers in the future are even interested in. That's quite true. And I do teach driver education on a part-time basis for AAA. And over the 20 years that I've been doing it, I've seen a marked change in the attitude towards cars and driving. Uh, Just recently, I had two very high-performance review cars in a row, and 20 years ago, you would have needed a crowbar to get the class away from the car, the cars. Ten years ago, you would have had class discussion time on the cars. A year and a half ago, nobody noticed who was in the class. The parents noticed, but the teenagers, eh, no big deal. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about driverless technology. I want to take a call now. Rick from South Windsor. Rick, you're on where we live. Yeah, I had a, I had sort of an ethical question, uh, which, which to me doesn't seem completely implausible. So let's say there's a, there's a situation where a pedestrian walks in front of a car, and the only way to avoid killing that pedestrian is to crash into a wall. Um, how does a how does a driverless car make that kind of decision in a split second? That's a very good question, and it's one that's been posed before. And that is, what are the ethics of a driverless situation such as that? And the answer is, it's going to be up to the people who program the car as to how they handle safety for the passengers versus safety for those people who are outside the vehicle. There are also questions in terms of the systems that exist where you might have a potential ethical problem, although you may not have an ethical problem. For example, could the system determine the difference between a baby carriage and a shopping cart? And obviously, you'd want to react differently if you could determine that sort of a difference. But you raise a very, very valid point 
that is going to have to be addressed. And indeed, as we look at as we look at the systems that will establish the standards and the regulatory environment in which these systems are developed, I think that that may very well be answered by regulation. Before we get to regulation, we were talking about Ford and, and this line of self-driving cars that they hope to have ready by 2021. But um, isn't there how they have launched that plan, Jim? Isn't it where they want to make those cars to specific areas where you can't just drive it anywhere? Yes. The, the initial applications are going to be in relatively limited areas. And in fact, just this last week, according to reports, Singapore unleashed some driverless cabs. So it's already happening in limited areas, and we'll determine exactly how far it goes. By the way, when we talk about vehicle safety, the other thing that individuals who are involved in developing the programming and the systems that will lead to autonomous vehicles point out, we drivers, for as poor a record as we have, and in the first half of 2015, for example, there were 2.3 million injuries from traffic crashes. But if you look at the fatality picture, for example, The average driver would have to drive somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 years before his or her number would statistically be up. As far as injuries are concerned, it's only about every 70 years. But in fact, as the people who are developing the systems that would make vehicles autonomous point out, drivers right now, as badly as we do on the roads and as tragic as the consequences of our mistakes happen to be, They do a pretty good job, and computer programmers point out that even so-called perfect code runs into errors. And if you take a look at the number of errors in perfect codes and then you apply that to the number of miles that people are driving, you would actually come up with a situation in which driverless cars would be crashing. It would not be an infrequent occurrence. And so that's an interesting question. There was an article in The Economist a while back in which it was suggested that vehicle autonomy could, in fact, reduce 80 percent of the crashes. And that would be a tremendous advancement, without a doubt. But you would still have 20 percent of the crashes remaining. So it's going to be a challenge. I want to take another call. Sebastian's calling from Newington. Sebastian, you're on Where We Live. I just want to make a point. Uh, Your guest, he mentioned earlier uh, the young generation that – simply will not have enough training uh, to uh, be able to take over uh, and drive the car in case of uh, when, the, when the technology uh, will fail. I believe the uh, uh, pilot community had uh, already experienced that when the recent crash of uh, Air France mm-hmm. uh, was flying from Brazil to uh, Paris, and the investigation uh, pointed out to uh, when a plane flew through uh, a back storm and uh, the planes that were flying were uh, very uh, extremely advanced when the technology failed two younger pilots were flying the plane they were simply not unable to take over and save the plane due to insufficient training well so I believe that you know applies to a future uh, well, a group of uh, young drivers, I, I believe that will happen sooner or later. Good point, Sebastian. Jim? He's absolutely correct, and, and there's increasing concern about this in the aviation industry. I believe also, for example, that the Asiana 777 that crashed in San Francisco upon landing crashed when the pilot said, you know, 
I'm going to give this a try as opposed to allowing the automated systems to step in. And so the answer is yes. As you don't practice the skills, inevitably there is going to be a decrease in those skill levels. And that's a great concern. Two years ago, there was a conference up at MIT on autonomous vehicles that I attended. And several of the speakers there said, actually, vehicle autonomy is going to require more skilled drivers than we have today. So think about that for just a moment. But the caller is absolutely right. And it's not just the Air France flight that crashed going from Brazil into Paris. There have been other situations in which pilots, when they had to take over the controls of the car because the automated systems failed in one way or another, when they had to take over automated control, I should say control of the plane, not the car, control of the plane because the automated systems failed, proved to be unable to fly the plane. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I want to take a call. Mary from Old Greenwich. Mary, you're on Where We Live. Yes, good morning. Um, I'm very interested in this program. I'm in my early 70s, and I love driving. And I realize that my um, abilities are going to diminish, and I worry about being in my 80s and not being able to get in my car and go where I want to go. And I found this very interesting, the comment that, Older people are not embracing this technology that is certainly the, it's more the younger generation. I, as a, an older person, can't wait till this really improves so that uh, I know that down the road I will still have my sense of freedom, that I can get in a car and go where I want to go. I'm not going to have to wait for somebody to come and take me places or do things for me. And um, I think this is a wonderful technology coming down the road, and I hope it improves in safety and in building confidence in the population. Thank you, Mary, for your call. Interesting uh, for someone who is older and what this means for people who want still independence and not have to wait for others uh, maybe to pick them up. And it could mean independence <laughs> not only remaining in a home, for example, that you know and love. And if you if you look at urban planning in this country and general land use, you will quickly come to the conclusion that it was designed for a mass transit system which consists of individual people in their cars driving to where they need to go. And that is not necessarily compatible as we age. And so there, she raises a very, very good point that this, in fact, could free you from having to reconsider your home, for example, having to move. It could keep you in touch with other people by allowing you to get to where you need to go. And in addition to that, if you carry it to the logical conclusion of ride-hailing and ride-sharing, it might even free you from the economic issues of owning a car. Before we had to break, I wanted to ask you, you know, what is the federal government doing in terms of regulations? You have all these car makers uh, experimenting with this new technology. What does this mean for our roadways and depending on what state you live in, um, how this technology will be rolled out? There are only a few states now that allow true use of autonomous vehicles for research purposes. And indeed, that's one of the concerns of the industry as they march toward vehicle autonomy is that we need a set of consistent regulations across the United States. If we end up with 50 different set of regulations, that's if it's not going to kill the movement toward autonomous vehicles, it's certainly going to slow the progress tremendously. I want to thank Jim McPherson, National AAA Auto Guide Writer and host of WTIC's Car Doctor program. When we come back, we'll hear more about advances in technology from some Connecticut innovators. Jim, thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure. This is where we live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Manufacturing sure has changed from the days of the Industrial Revolution. Today, 3D printing has replaced the traditional assembly line used to produce goods. It's also a technology that's accessible to the public, with 3D printers found on college campuses and in local libraries. Joining us now in studio is Scott, I'm sorry, joining us now by phone, rather, is Scott DeFelice, president and CEO of Oxford Performance Materials in South Windsor. Scott, welcome to where we live. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on. Tell us about your company. So OPM started um, in 2000 as an advanced materials company, and then around uh, seven or eight years ago, we started thinking, wow, if we could take our advanced materials that you know go, in, go on uh, aircraft and uh, go in the human body and we could 3D print them, which means effectively put them in any shape you like, that would be really enabling. And that was really the origin of OPM. And, and today the focus of the business is really to advance our 3D printing or additive manufacturing technology globally. So your company originally uh, made plastics and now you're selling to both aerospace and the biomedical fields? Yeah, so we, we were working on this really high-performance material that had been developed uh, quite some time ago. And, um, you know, the, our customers who were putting it uh, on aircraft and we were also putting it in the human body just really started saying, look, there's this new technology called 3D printing. And if you guys could figure out how to do that with your material, that would be really enabling to them. And so that, that's really what set us down that journey. Tell us about some of the products that you're making. Um, so right now we, we started in 3D printing and biomedical, and the first few products were so cranial and facial reconstruction. So, you know, you have an unfortunate incident and you lose a part of your skull or a part of your face. Uh, and what you want to do really is put something in there that anatomically uh, replaces what, what was there. So you look like you did before. And so that, those were our first products that we launched four years ago. So in, in South Windsor, Connecticut, we're uh, pretty busy every uh, every week producing uh, a good number of, of implants that are really shipped uh, around the world. Um, you know, we're in Europe, we're in South America, we're in Asia. It's really a, a global business. And mo- most recently in our biomedical business, we also got spinal implants approved. So uh, now we're uh, working diligently to uh, bring those to market. In our uh, in our other business, which is actually a separate building right down the street, um, we're, we're, we started out in uh, satellite work and then moved into manned spacecraft, and now we're moving into defense and commercial aerospace uh, components. And really what that's about is, and this is kind of the, a big trend, is everybody wants everything lighter. Um, lighter and cheaper is nice. Everyone wants that. And so when you, know, you can imagine if you're putting something into space, every pound costs a lot of money. And so that's where we, we've started with the technology, where it creates a tremendous virtue uh, for our customers uh, to, to get their payloads into space. Uh, today we're talking about innovation, Scott, and I'm curious if you could explain to our listeners how 3D printing um, really helps with turnaround time when you're, when you're making things like these cranial implants. Yeah, so, you know, traditional manufacturing has required uh, a lot of tooling and setup to get to these complex parts and these complex structures. And so, you know, that was just a matter of building tools and then molding parts or machining them in a very special way. And, you know, that could take anywhere from weeks to many months. And, uh, you know, what we can do is, you know, we can get a file from a hospital that says, well, this is the thing you've got to build. 
uh, and we can ship it to the hospital within three to five days. And that's, you know, that's great for them because, you know, they, they really want to use their uh, capacities as efficiently as possible. And so the fact that we can react uh, when they need it is important. And can I ask what's keeping you in Connecticut? We hear, uh, you know, anecdotally, we see some data that, you know, businesses are, are leaving at times. You know, what's keeping you here? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Now, we, so we've worked with the state quite a bit to, uh, to remain competitive and, and, and receive development support in, along that path. But that's not really what keeps us here. What really, what really keeps us in Connecticut is the mix of people and technologies. Um, so, sure, you can go to some state and um, you can get very low tax rates and you can get all small manner of subsidies. Um, but at the end of the day, what makes uh, an advanced technology company uh, tick is uh, the people, right? And so you need to have – and what we need in our business is a diverse set of technologists, whether they're chemists, material scientists, mechanical engineers, structural engineers. So there's a whole host of different folks we need to touch on a daily basis to advance uh, you know, and innovate. And uh, Connecticut does have that, um, those type of folks. And, you know, I'd also say that the state, their head is in the game on this, and they know that, you know, we are, we are not a low-cost state, so we have to be an advanced technology state. And to do that, you have to do purposeful things. And, and I think that uh, over years now, um, you know, the state, you know, through Connecticut Innovations and Department of Economic Community Development and, and other organizations has uh, had their head in the game and, and focused on advanced technology. So, you know, the combination of things uh, makes it right. You know, we, we obviously do have gripes. We, we'd like to see the energy more efficient and um, more appropriately priced. But, uh, you know, you got to take, take the good with the bad. And we think on balance, it's a, it's a great place to do business. Stay with us, Scott. I wanted to turn to another uh, innovator uh, in Connecticut. Uh, Patrick Puskowski is joining us from uh, the studios at Yale University. He's director of software at Isoplexus, based in Brantford. Patrick, welcome to where we live. Thanks for having me. So tell us about uh, Isoplexus and what you're making that's uh, very innovative in Brantford. Sure. Well, you know, we're, we're a startup that um, came out of Yale University about two or three years ago. Um, we work in a really exciting space called uh, cancer immunotherapy, which for anyone who doesn't know, it's essentially developing new treatments for cancer that um, help the immune system of a patient actually fight back and recognize, you know, the cancer cells in their body and, and destroy them. Um, and so our, what our technology really does is to, you know, work with, with pharmaceutical firms that are developing these therapies and um, help, you know, test whether the, these treatments that they're developing are safe um, and, and effective. So your device that you've created is looking at uh, each individual uh, person's cells? Right. So, you know, we can take a patient's cells, uh, you know, a small sample of, of immune cells. We can actually look at individual cells and see exactly kind of how they're responding to to a, a particular treatment. Um, and that kind of helps us, you know, give a better indication of whether the patient as a whole will respond well to the treatment or or have an adverse effect to the treatment. And, and uh, Peter, I'll, I'm sorry, uh, Patrick, rather, mm -hmm. I'll ask you the same question I asked sure. Scott in terms of, you know, uh, why Connecticut? You know, what makes you um, want to have this business here? I mean, I think largely the same reasons. I, you know, Connecticut's a great a great space, you know, both for, you know, finding, you know, really, really smart people. You know, we, most of our employees come from Connecticut. Um, it's, you know, got great resources, 
you know, obviously Yale University and, and other universities are are nearby. So, you know, I, th I think it's it's a great place for startups to, to evolve and um, biotechnology companies in general. And what is the technology that um, your company, Isoplexus, has developed? You know, what does that mean mm -hmm. for the future of cancer treatment? Well, you know, these these therapies are really are are really promising. Um, there's you know, there's been great indications that that they can they can work really really well. Um, the the only issues are really understanding you know what that they, you know they won't necessarily work for every single patient. So you have to kind of understand you know which types of patients can receive the treatment. You know, which probably shouldn't be receiving the treatment. And so, you know, we're really focusing on on helping these companies do exactly that. Um, you know, a, a high-profile case, in fact, was, you know, most recently, uh, former President Jimmy Carter was actually um, diagnosed with metastatic melanoma, and, you know, he received one of these these first treatments that were approved by the FDA, and, you know, about six months later or so, he's, he's been declared cancer-free. So, you know, obviously, there there is a large potential for these therapies to work. And you have a, a partnership, or uh, many of your employees and, and creators come from Yale, is that right? Yep, they come from Yale and, you know, the, the surrounding, you know, Connecticut area um, are, you know, one of our co-founders is, is from Yale. So, so obviously we, you know, there's a, there's a large talent pool there to, you know, to get new employees. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about innovation and, and advances in technology. I want to take a quick call. Peter is calling from Stanford. Peter, you're on where we live. Uh, yes, I've, uh, I'm very interested in 3D printing. I've heard a few programs about it. And it sounds very uh, science fiction-like. Uh, you know, you're making body parts for, uh, you know, for medical purposes. Is there any nothing uh, the 3D, 3D printer can't make? Can, can a 3D printer make just about anything in the universe? I, I'm not quite under. <laughs> I don't quite understand. You know, but, yeah. but it has a sort of like a science fiction type of a, 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 a of, of a quality to it that you can make just about anything from a 3D printer. I'll, well, I'll, I'll let Scott DeFelice answer that. He's president and CEO of Oxford Performance Materials in South Windsor. Scott? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, and we, we hear it a lot. Um, but, but the truth is, so when you, when you print, you princi principally print with just one material. So if you say uh, you're going to print the shape, it's going to be made out of that single material. Now, of course, if you're holding your iPhone in your hand, you recognize that that phone's made of lots of different materials. So what we say is mostly monolithic shapes of one material uh, and then you also have to recognize that the material has to be useful for the purpose right so if you're going to print an apple you have to be able to eat it so that means that the um, material that you print with is, is going to be of the appropriate substance that you would consume so you know the materials limit um, where what you can do and the, the, the number of materials in the device that you're interested in limit it so it's really good at printing complex structures made of a single material, and that, that's where you're seeing it uh, adopted uh, globally. And Scott, before we head to break, I'm just curious about the future of 3D printing. Do we see this technology having staying power and um, further advances, or will it be replaced by something else? Well, you know, I think when you look at the history of materials, you, you went from, you know, uh, steel and iron to aluminum to composites and even every time you make those steps in the new material paradigms they, they hang around for a while they're pretty sticky so 25 30 years is sort of a normal paradigm for a material to uh to shine and so i you know i could imagine that 3d printing will always be around but it'll probably have a um, a predominant place in manufacturing which i think now is just really at the 
complete beginning. It's really early um, for quite some time. Well, I want to thank Scott DeFelice, President and CEO of Oxford Performance Materials in South Windsor. Also, thank you to Patrick Bukowski, Director of Software at Isoplexus in Brantford. He joined us from Yale University Studios. Coming up, have you heard of hydrokinetic energy? We'll explore the latest around this renewable energy source. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about the latest in technological advances from our region and their impacts on our country and world. Lately there's been attention on renewable energy in New England with the opening of the first offshore wind farm in Rhode Island. There's another technology in development that could help lower electricity costs while further reducing our reliance on fossil fuels. And it's called hydrokinetic energy. Joining us by phone now is John Rogers, senior analyst in the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. John, welcome to where we live. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks for coming on. And tell us about hydrokinetic energy. You know, how is it different from other renewable sources? Sure. So hydrokinetic energy is basically the energy in moving water, hydrokinetic. Uh, in the case of the ocean, that's the energy in waves, in the tides, in ocean currents. So like, like wind and solar energy, hydrokinetic energy is renewable. So th- those waves, the tides, the currents just keep on moving. What's different about hydrokinetic is uh, so one thing is their ability to provide uh, consistent or or predictable power. We can predict wave patterns, you know, days in advance. We can predict the tides, years or decades or centuries ahead of time. Another another big thing is just the the, the sheer power of water versus wind. Water is is much more dense, which means that if you've got water moving at say you know 12 miles per hour. It's got the same amount of power in it as a 110 mile per hour wind, so that's a that's a lot lot of energy, and and the thing about it is it's it's uh, right off our coast. You know, more than half of Americans live within 50 miles of the coast, so if you think about the Pacific coast, the Atlantic coast, the Gulf coast, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of power, very close to where people live, where people need need that power. So why haven't we seen uh, or read more about hydrokinetic energy? I mean, where does it stand in development? Well, it's still pretty early days in terms of the commercialization. There are there are a lot of ways that people are trying to take that incredible power and turn it into what we need, which is electricity. Uh, a lot of technologies out there, uh, but these things take time. It's a, it's a uh, it's a very tough environment. You know, if you think about saltwater, it's a very caustic environment. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, if anybody was out, you know, in this recent tropical storm and saw some of that intense power out there, if you think about the waves, uh, think about the motion of the water, there's a, there's a lot of energy there that we can harness. If, if we can harness it, we can do great things with it, but it's also, it's a, it's a tough place to do business. We're here in New England. How much potential for hydrokinetic energy um, off of our coast? So if you think about it, so the, uh, let's talk just a little bit about the technologies. Wave, wave energy is the one that we've got the, the most of, the most potential of around the U.S. And this is, so picture, uh, picture a buoy going up and down and having part of it that's attached to the seabed, you know, that's firm in place. Anytime you've got that sort of relative motion of one part versus another, you can, make, you can theoretically make electricity with that. And we've seen that actually in demonstration projects around the U.S., uh, or you can have a bunch of segments, you know, floating on top of the water. Picture a, a segmented snake or a, or a, a series of sausages, 
and those move, you know, bob up and down at different times, you can make electricity with that. So that's uh, that potential is there. Uh, most of the wave, uh, so w wave energy is the big one for the U.S. in terms of potential energy. Most of that is in the Pacific, but the but the Atlantic Ocean certainly has its share, and we have we have opportunities in the Northeast. If you look from the country as a whole, we could be talking about something, you know, potentially 10% of our electricity supply coming from wave energy, uh, coming from these 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 uh, well wave energy, and then we've got these other these other options like tidal and ocean currents. What about our rivers and streams? Sure, that's another uh, another form of hydrokinetic is anytime. So hydrokinetic is just the moving water. So as opposed to the dams we have, and we're certainly familiar with in New England, basically trying to capture the energy of the water as it keeps moving, uh, and that's that's another potential uh, potential source. Uh, you could imagine things that look sort of like wind turbines just stuck under the water or other moving parts that just capture that energy, whether that's in, in rivers or in tidal currents or ocean currents. So lots of different ways of, of making electricity, potentially. You know, oftentimes uh, what gets people interested in renewable uh, energy sources is obviously the impact on our, our wallets. But uh, can you talk about with the development of hydrokinetic uh, energy, you know, what that would mean in terms of, of our um, dependence on fossil fuels? Well, it's still pretty early days to understand what these things might cost. There are projections certainly that would, you know, once we get these to scale, uh, that we'd be seeing uh, energy prices close to what we'd expect from from other sources. Uh, with any new technology, you're going to see a, a curve. You would hope to see a curve as as the technology matures and as scale go, gets greater, that you'll see those those costs coming down. We're still really early days in that. But you mentioned offshore wind. Uh, well, let's let's take solar as an example. If you think about where we were with solar energy just six or eight years ago how far we've come uh, in terms of cost reductions. We expect to see the same thing with offshore wind now that we have the first turbines off of, off of uh, the U.S. Uh, in, in New England. Uh, and we would expect to see something like that with different hydrokinetic technologies. I think the important thing now is to be investing in a range of technologies to see which one really makes the most sense or which ones, what suite of technologies really make the most sense for the for the region or for particular circumstances or for the country as a whole. Well, when we think about uh, wind turbines, people obviously um, concerned about, you know, you know, maybe the impact on the environment or uh, the impact on their view. Uh, but in terms of hydrokinetic energy, um, you know, any, any kind of research that's being done, does it impact, you know, marine life? Uh, that's something else we'll have to see. Uh, there's some experience with demonstration, demonstration projects around the world. Uh, we'd have to see, you know, in terms of our particular circumstances, certainly you would want to cite these in places where they're, they're likely from the get-go to have the fewest impacts on, on marine wildlife, whether that's fish or whales or other marine mammals. Uh, you also want to think about shipping, you know, shipping lanes, not, uh, not putting it in ways that will obstruct, uh, obstruct our, our shipping, our, our important uh, ocean commerce. So looking, looking for different ways, it, thinking carefully about where to cite these things, but also uh, uh, thinking about where they, would, where they will do us, us the most good. In terms of the visual impact, a lot of what goes on with hydrokinetic energy is under the surface of the water, so it's going to be a lot less visible than some, than some other technologies. Um, 
some of these, you know, it, it varies by technology, but a lot of it is below ground. And how is the the federal government backing uh, research into hydrokinetic energy? Anything coming out of the U.S. Energy Department? There sure is. In fact, just uh, last week they announced uh, the the U.S. Department of Energy announced millions of dollars of support for research, development, and demonstration projects, including several here in the Northeast. Well, I want to thank John Rogers. He's senior analyst in the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, John, you said a lot of research being done uh, in the next five to ten years. We'll be seeing more of these projects surfacing. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure we will, uh, and in a variety of environments around the U.S. And that's and that's really important because we want to we want to be able to kick the tires on these technologies and figure out what they might mean for for our energy future. Well, thank you so much, John. We'll have some uh, interesting links up on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, if you want to learn more. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Again, you can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening today.